So this was the end this week, marked the end of our four-week community Bible reading experience. I have absolutely no idea uh, how many people in our community participated in the experience. I do know that we gave away over 500 Bibles, and if some of those get shared or whatever, we're talking about approximately a whole lot of people. So I'm really excited. If you were a part of that Pat yourself on the back. You arrived at the end of the first half of the experience, or <laughs> some people are uh, almost have arrived at the end. It's okay. You you were only supposed to finish two days ago. You're not that far behind. Keep plugging away. Um, we're gonna we're gonna pick up this whole thing again in January, on uh, I think January 19th, whatever that Monday is. Um, we're gonna pick up this whole thing again and read the second half of the New Testament. I'm really proud of our church. I'm really excited that so many adults are reading the New Testament together and more than that, having incredible conversations about about a life of faith, about what it looks like to love God and what it looks like to love people and, and are just being inspired by the message of Jesus as it's described in the New Testament. It's amazing. I know that there are lots of good conversations. I've been having a lot of them in the group that I get together with on Monday nights at the church to debrief the readings together because that was an integral part of it. One of the conversations I had, which was awesome, it wasn't a part of that group, but it was a conversation with somebody who said to me, okay, they said, I've been reading through all of this material and so on, and, you know, you read the Gospels and you read about this, the story of Jesus and all the stuff that he's doing in people's lives, all the miraculous ways he's bringing healing into people's lives. Then you read the story of the New Testament church and all the ways in which God's doing amazing thing in, in that church and all the miraculous stuff that they're doing, the healing that they're experiencing and so on. And he said, I guess my question is this, uh, why don't we experience more of that? Right? That's what we've been talking about, right, for five weeks in this series, too. About how Jesus came into the world with the power and authority of God to bring healing and hope and restoration to the brokenness, darkness, sickness, pain, chaos, and death of our lives and our world. We've been talking about how Jesus came into the world to, to bring the loving, healing power of God into contact with the brokenness of the world. And the question that emerged for this person in response to their reading could be exactly the same question that emerges in response to this series, which is, if this is what Jesus came to do, why don't we experience more of it in our lives and in the community? Because, you know, make no mistake, as we've talked about now for five weeks, this is what Jesus came to do. We've watched Jesus cleanse lepers and we've watched him cure chronic pain and severe infections. We've watched Jesus calm the storm, control the forces of nature. We've watched Jesus cast demons out of people. We've watched Jesus raise up a paralytic and even forgive a notorious sinner and set him free from guilt and shame. We've watched Jesus do some amazing, powerful stuff in the course of this series. And as we arrive at the last passage in this series, Matthew wants to make sure that Jesus goes out on a high note. Right? He doesn't kind of peter off at the end. In fact, Matthew, in this text that we're going to look at today, is going to throw four more stories at us about the amazing stuff that Jesus has done. In verse 18 of Matthew 9, it says this, while he was saying this, kind of interrupting a conversation that we'll look at in a minute, a synagogue leader came and knelt before Jesus and said, 
my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. That is amazing faith. That's not, you know, my daughter's sick. That's not, help us, Lord, we're gonna die. My daughter's just died, but you come and put your hand on her and she'll live. And so Jesus got up and went with them and so did the disciples. And just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. So here's Jesus. He's at this party, right, with Matthew, the tax collector, and all of his tax collector sinner buddies. And they're all sitting around the table or reclining around the table. And they're all eating this feast together. And the synagogue ruler like a, a, an elder at the synagogue, a worship leader at the synagogue, comes breaking into the room and he says, Jesus, you gotta help me. My daughter has just died. And so Jesus gets up and he walks out of the party and he follows this synagogue ruler. And while he's walking down the street, this woman comes up to him from behind to touch his cloak because she has been struggling with an issue of bleeding for 12 years. Now, obviously, Matthew's being a little bit coy in the way he's describing this. Um, fellas, this woman is experiencing a little bit of a lady issue, but not a little bit. She's been experiencing this thing for more than a decade. And uh, us guys, there's about half people who are gathered in our three locations this morning who don't really know how to process just how horrible this, it can't even begin to imagine how horrible this thing is, can hardly even relate what it feels like to live with those physical symptoms, right? The bloating and the feeling disgusting all the time, the cramps, those, those wicked cramps, like somebody's got your small intestines in a vice. Best I can tell, fellas, the closest we can experience it, it's like eating at McDonald's three meals a day for 12 years. That's pretty much how this woman felt all the time. Uh, not, I mean, not just that, but to deal with the fatigue, to feel like you could hardly peel yourself off the couch, knowing that you got tons of stuff to do, right? This woman was a, a wife and a mother. She probably ran the family business that operated in the house. That's what women did in those days. This woman was a very industrious woman in all likelihood, but she can barely peel herself off the couch because she's so tired because she's losing blood all the time. And if she does peel herself off the couch, what does she do? The women know laundry, right? Especially in a culture without tampons or anything like that. Like this woman is doing laundry. Imagine how embarrassing and humiliating that would be. Every time you go out, everyone can see what's going on in your life. Just imagine how you'd feel. You'd feel disgusting all of the time. Imagine what it would do to your relationships. This woman was spiritually unclean which meant that nobody was supposed to touch her. Imagine what that would do to your marriage. Was her husband one of the people who didn't want to touch her for 12 years? The condition wasn't life-threatening. It was just life-destroying. And here she is, Jesus is walking down the street and she falls in behind him. She kind of sneaks up behind him and in secret she thinks, if I just touch the edge of his coat, I'll be healed. And she reaches out and she touches his coat. And Jesus, the moment she touches him, Jesus turns around and I can only imagine him smiling and he looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith has saved you. And from that moment she was healed. Your faith 
has saved you? What faith did she demonstrate? One of the commentators that I was reading said this. Faith is the readiness to take the appropriate action to open yourself up to the power and authority of Jesus flowing into your life. Faith is the readiness to take the action that opens you up to the healing power of Jesus. That's what this woman did. She reached out, touched his coat. She took the appropriate action and it opened her up to experience his healing and her faith had saved her. But remember where Jesus is going, right? This isn't even the story. This is a distraction from the story. Jesus is on his way to the house of the synagogue ruler. And when he gets there, this ruler, his daughter, is gone. I mean, she is gone, gone. She has died. Jesus walks through the door of the house, and he steps into a first century Jewish wake. And this isn't like the way we do funeral home, right? A bunch of Westerners sitting around quietly and in hushed tones, putting an arm around each other and offering each other a box of Kleenex and saying, I'm really sorry. That's not what this is. This is a first century Jewish wake. It's loud. You fill the house with all of your friends and your family and the people who live around you, your neighbors and everybody from the village, they all kind of cram in your house. And once the house is filled with people, you hire a band. Seriously, you really do. The rabbis would say even the poorest person in Israel should be able to afford two clarinet players and a singer for a wake like this because you want to you invest in the morning in a way that honors the person. And so you'd hire a band and you'd have a singer who was writing songs and singing them about how terrible this situation was that this little girl had died. And it wasn't just the band, it was the professional mourners who had shown up and who weep and wail at the top of their lungs to try and induce grief from the rest of the, of the crowd, right? There's, there's no stiff upper lip. This is... You know, cry it out, man. Like, you got to get it out. And the, the mourners are there to help get everybody else in tears. And Jesus walks in, and Matthew says the house was in an uproar. And the synagogue ruler, I can imagine, the synagogue ruler gets everyone to, to shut down, right? And just be quiet, be quiet. Jesus is here, and he's going to help. And Jesus looks at the crowd, and he says, hey, don't worry about the girl. She's just asleep. And everyone bursts out laughing. Some of them are professional mourners. They've seen a dead body or two in their day. They know what a dead body looks like. And Jesus, they think, has misdiagnosed the situation. The thing is, they've misunderstood Jesus. Jesus isn't diagnosing the situation. Jesus is prognosing the situation. I don't even know if that's a word. But Jesus is doing it. He's not saying what has happened. Jesus is saying what's about to happen. What he's saying is, don't worry, folks. This is temporary. She's about to get up. But the crowd laughs. And since they don't have faith, Jesus kicks them out of the house. And it says in Matthew chapter 9, Verse 25, it says, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. And news of this spread throughout the region. That's kind of Matthew's point in this section. That Jesus continues to do this amazing stuff, raising somebody from the dead. And the news begins to spread. It says in verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, so Jesus you know, comes out of the house and heads back into the street, two blind men start following him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. See, Jesus comes out of the house 
and everything is chaos around him, right? There is a buzz in the wake of the wake where the girl was awake. <laughs> you see what I did there? It's pretty clever. Um, there's a buzz all around Jesus, right? Everybody's talking about what's going on and whatever. And these blind guys, they can't see what's going on, but they can hear the crowd and they can hear the buzz. And it's kind of like positioning themselves as beggars outside the Sky Dome when the Blue Jays game lets out. There are thousands of people, or hundreds, or who knows how many, but there are people going by. But instead of yelling, alms for the poor, they realize that Jesus is in the midst of the crowd. And so they cry out instead. They cry out in faith. It's, they say, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David is a messianic term. It means savior. It means king. It refers to the one who has the power and authority of God to make the things on earth the way that it is in heaven. Matthew says Jesus kind of rushes them into this house and he asks them, do you think I can heal you? And they say, we totally do. And Jesus heals them and their eyes are open and he says, now listen, don't tell anybody because I've created enough chaos as it is and it says they walk out of the house and they can't help themselves. They just tell everybody that they meet what Jesus has done for them. In fact, it says the report spread throughout the region. The verb in Greek is famizo. They spread his fame throughout the region. Well, Jesus walks out of the house, it says in verse 32, and a man who was demon-possessed, who could not talk, was brought to Jesus. When the demon was driven out, I love that phrase, when the demon was driven out, like Matthew's like, I'm so done describing these healings. It happens, you know it's happened, you know it's gonna happen, the demon's gone. He says, this is what happened, the man who was mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed, and this is the point. And they said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. The crowd recognized in Jesus that Jesus is doing something completely unique that has never been seen in Israel. That God himself, his healing power and authority is breaking into the old situation of the world the way that it was and God is doing in Jesus something new among them. God is speaking forgiveness over sins. He's speaking freedom over guilt and shame. God is curing sickness and bringing hope into darkness and God is restoring brokenness and God is speaking um, God is speaking calm into the chaos and he's speaking peace into the pain and the paranoia. Jesus is stepping into the world and making everything new. And the question that I got asked this week was why, if this is what Jesus came to do, why don't we see more of it? I think there's a lot of answers that you could give. But Matthew gives us one. At the beginning of this passage in Matthew 9, verse 14, Matthew gives us one that we want to talk about. In Matthew 9, verse 14, Jesus is still at the party with the tax collectors. And it says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often but your disciples do not fast. Jesus is reclining at this feast. And the disciples of John the Baptist 
come up to him and say, Jesus, listen, we got a question. It's a religious question. So, you know, some of us, some of us fast all the time. The Pharisees, the religious crowd, they fast all the time. We, John's disciples, we fast all the time. We're just kind of wondering what the matter is with you and your disciples that you guys basically never fast. Now, that's not entirely true because Jesus and his disciples, I'm sure, fast. Jesus speaks favorably about fasting in Matthew chapter 6. He assumes that people who love him and follow him are going to be fasting. Jesus and his disciples were law-observant, you know, religious law-observant Jews, and I'm sure they would have fasted on the Day of Atonement. It was the only fast commanded by the, Moses, the, the law of Moses was that on the Day of Atonement, you would fast for the whole day and pray in repentance for God to forgive the sins of the nation. They fasted, but that wasn't the issue. John's disciples and says, no, the, the issue isn't why don't you fast. The issue is why don't you fast as often as us? See, because everybody fasted on the Day of Atonement. You don't have to be special to do that. Every Jew did that. These guys fasted not once a year. These guys fasted twice a week. From sundown on Sunday through sundown on Monday. And then again from sundown on Wednesday through sundown on Thursday. Two times a week they fasted with a fast that ended at supper time on Monday. A supper time on Thursday just in time for nachos and football. Which is what people who seriously love God do. Right? That's kind of the point of their question. You can hear the criticism. In their question, they say, listen, Jesus, there are some people who are really super spiritual. There are some people who are really uber religious, some people who are very zealous about their relationship with God. They live with a great deal of moral rigor. They, they are very serious about loving God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength. And those people, people like us, let's say, just to pick an example, those people fast two times a week and there are other people, like you, who don't fast as often as us. How come you don't do it the way we do it? You hear the criticism in that? And we do it all the time, don't we, just by the way? We do it all the time. Use ourselves as the standard by which we measure and then judge other people, right? We do it as parents. Ooh, did you see the way their kid is behaving? I wouldn't have done it that way, and my kid would have behaved. We, we do it when it comes to marriage. Ooh, you guys don't do it the way we do it? Well, you should do it the way we do it because we don't experience the problems that you guys are experiencing because of the way that we do it, right? We do it when it comes to work. Oh, you're not gonna wanna do it that way. You're gonna wanna do it the way I do it because basically that's the right way to do it. And we do it, honestly, we do it with regards to our faith. Well, since this is the way I believe, this is the way I behave, since this is the way I practice my religion and since I basically do it the right way, I think you should do it like me. Oh, you don't want to do it like me? Well, you, that's okay. Not everybody loves God as much as I do, right? Do you hear the insane pride and arrogance in judging each other in that way? But that's exactly what was going on here. They're like, listen, we're really serious about our love for God, and you guys don't seem to be as serious as we are about your love for God, and I'm just wondering why that is, why you don't love God as much as we do. And in Matthew 9, 15, Jesus answered, and he said, how can, Lisa, let me ask you a question. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? 
The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they'll fast. Don't worry about it, they'll fast. But not right now. Because, Jesus says, he kind of goes in a metaphor mode. He says, listen, how can a bride and a groom expect their guests to fast at a wedding reception? Right? That's not the time for fasting, it's time for feasting. That's not a time for sorrow, it's a time for celebration. That's not a time for praying, that's a time for partying. You don't fast at a wedding reception. Which is true, religiously, even the rabbis said that. That if you go to a wedding reception, you're free from your religious obligations, even the obligation to fast. Because in Jewish religion, the obligation to, to party, to celebrate, supersedes the obligation to be sorrowful and to fast and pray. What Jesus is saying is he's reminding them that in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah says, when God breaks into the world and does this new thing, when God steps into the life of Israel and forgives their sin and draws them back into a relationship with himself, when God returns his presence to Israel, it is going to be like a groom coming for his bride and their coming together will be like a marriage and the wedding reception will last for all of eternity. And Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. That's happening in me. See, the reason John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting two times a week was to mourn the deplorable, sinful condition of the nation and the world and to pray that God would send his Messiah. And the disciples say, well, how come you're not praying that God would send the Messiah? And Jesus is like, hello, I'm right here. The reason, and this is the bottom line, the reason we don't fast is because the situation has changed. We're in a new situation now. And in a new situation, you have to leave the old behaviors behind. And then he elaborates like this. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment and make the tear worse. He says, now imagine you got a favorite shirt. And you've worn this shirt for like 30 years. And this thing's been through the ringer a million times and, you know, just out of sheer fabric fatigue, this thing eventually tears. And instead of throwing it away and going to get a decent shirt, you love your shirt too much, you're going to hang on to it and you're, just, you're going to patch it. Jesus says, now let me ask you this, how are you going to patch it? Are you going to take a new piece of unshrunk cloth and sew it onto that shirt? He said, of course you're not. Because what's going to happen? The first time that puppy goes into the laundry, that cloth is going to shrink and it's going to tear the whole shirt to pieces. And your condition at the end is going to be worse than it was at the beginning. Because you can't take the new and force it into the pattern of the old. He says in verse 17, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. In, in those days, you didn't store wine in a keg or a barrel or a glass bottle. You stored them in, a, in an animal skin that was tanned and treated and cleaned and sewed shut on all sides except at the neck. And you pour the, the unfermented wine in the skin and then you cork it up at the top and you allow the wine to ferment right there in the skin. Now what happens to the skins over time is that they get old and brittle. 
And so let's say you had a wine skin that was basically empty. You'd finished the wine that was in there and you wanted to ferment some new wine and you thought, well, I'll just save a buck. I'll reuse the old one instead of going and buying a new one. Jesus said, would you take new unfermented wine and pour it into the old wine skin? Of course you wouldn't. Because when the wine begins to ferment, the gases begin to expand and it's going to put pressure on the outside walls of the, of the wine skin. And that old and brittle wine skin isn't going to be able to expand and stretch with the wine and it's going to explode and basically you're going to lose everything. He says, do you pour new wine into old wine skins? No, if you do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wine skin will be ruined. No, you pour new wine into new wine skins and both will be preserved. You can't take the new and try and force it into the containers or the boundaries of the old. If you do, you lose everything. This is the point that Jesus is making. If you want to experience the new thing, but you're committed to the old thing, you're going to end up with nothing. You follow me? You want to experience the new thing, but you're committed to the old thing, you're going to end up with nothing. Say it a different way. If you only do what you've always done, you'll only get what you've always got. If you want to experience the new thing, you have to behave in new ways. See, here's what I think. I think one of the biggest barriers in my life, your life, our community, in churches everywhere, one of the biggest barriers to us experiencing this new thing, this power and authority of Jesus to bring healing and hope and restoration into our lives and into our community, the biggest barrier is our commitment to continuing to doing things the way we've always done them. We try, we say, Jesus, we want you to do a new thing. We just want you to do it in the old container. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. Right, we want to experience Jesus bringing healing into our lives and into the lives of the people that we love. Yet when we pray for healing, we don't really pray in the new way of courage and faith that in, creates the space for Jesus' power and authority to come in. We want people to be healed, but when we pray for healing, we're like, oh, Jesus, you know, my friend is really sick, and if it's your will, would you heal them, but I doubt that it is your will, so could you give the doctors at least a little bit of wisdom and would you comfort his wife because he's probably gonna die, right? Like we don't, that is a far cry from Peter and John looking at a cripple and saying, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk, right? If you want to experience the new thing, you gotta behave in a new way that opens up a space for the power and authority of Jesus to flow, Right? Give you another example. We want to experience revival in our spirit, right? We come here, at least in part, because we want to feel the closeness and the intimacy and the passion of the love of God flowing through our spirit, right? And yet when we come, we stand here during worship with our hands in our pockets and our mouths open about this wide, and we just kind of look around side to side and we half-heartedly sing along in the time of worship. Now, I'm not saying that Putting your hands up is the magical formula to feeling the love of God. But what I am saying is that that certainly doesn't feel like somebody came here to love God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their mind and all of their strength with all of their body. If you want to experience the new thing, but you're only going to behave according to the old thing, you're going to experience nothing. 
rather than coming and in full-hearted passion, express that in whatever way comes naturally to you, whether it's raising your hands and closing your eyes and singing your guts out, whatever it looks like, you come to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And in coming in that kind of faith, you open up a space in your life for God to do something new. We want to experience the healing of our soul, of our emotions, of, the, of all the dark stuff that we feel inside or healing in our relationships with each other. But what healing requires is that we actually be honest and vulnerable about the stuff that we really think and the stuff that we really feel. And we refuse to do that. We refuse to be vulnerable and to show people to tell people what we're really thinking and what we're really feeling. Instead, we participate in the fine thank you and how are you kind of culture that we generate around here. And because you refuse, remember what faith is? The readiness to take the appropriate action that opens the space for the power and authority of Jesus to flow in your life. Because we refuse in, in courage and faith to take that step, we don't experience the new thing. We want to live lives of purpose and mission. We want to be on a mission for God. We want God to use our lives for healing and hope and restoration in other people's lives. And yet we're terrified to drop out of the rat race. So we keep living the way that we've been living and then wonder why God's not able to do a new thing through our lives. We, we want to experience the freedom of living in simplicity and generosity, of lowering our standard of what we mean by enough so that everybody can have enough. And yet we're unwilling to make the financial sacrifice, we're unwilling to change the standard of living that we live by. And because we keep doing the old thing, we don't let Jesus do the new thing. That's Jesus' point, that if you want to experience the new thing, but you keep doing the old thing, you're going to experience nothing. That's his point. And why do we do it? We do it because we're afraid. We're afraid of being humiliated. We pray for healing and God chooses not to heal and now I'm humiliated. We pray, you know, we show up and we just passionately engage in worship and people, and first of all, we don't feel anything and people look at us sideways as they show off. Guys just looking for attention and now we're humiliated and we feel judged. That's the other, we're afraid of being humiliated and we're afraid of being judged. We're afraid of what other people are gonna say. You start being vulnerable and sharing really what you're thinking about and what you're feeling and so on. And the person looks at you and says, I, I don't wanna hear that. And however they communicate that, I don't wanna hear that. And you're humiliated and you feel judged. And so we keep doing the old thing. And Jesus says, if you wanna experience the new thing, but you keep doing the old thing, you're gonna experience nothing. That if you keep doing what you've always done, you're gonna keep getting what you always got. But what if, and this is, I leave this whole passage dreaming about this what if, but what if, what if we could become a community of courage and faith to step out and take a risk and do the new thing and behave in a new way, to, to learn to step out and be prepared to take the appropriate action that opens us up for the power and authority of Jesus to flow into our lives in the form of healing and hope and restoration in the midst of the darkness and the brokenness and the sickness and the pain and the chaos and death of our lives and our world. What would happen? What would happen if we could find that courage and step out in faith? I'll tell you what would happen. 
no one would ask. Why don't we experience that in our community anymore? Because we would have stories to tell of people that you love and people that I love who have been rescued from the grip of sickness and death. Stories that we would tell of the ways in which Jesus reached into people's lives and rescued them from their depression or delivered them from their addiction. We'd have stories to tell of marriages that were brought back from the brink, of kids that were going over the cliff and were rescued, of families that were restored and reconciled, the friendships that people thought had been blown up for good but had come back together as a testimony of God's love. We'd have stories to tell of the ways in which our community is different because of the power and authority of Jesus that flows not only in us, but through us and into the world. If only we could find the courage of faith that wants to experience the new thing so it stops doing the old thing and starts to experience something. That's the invitation of Jesus. And that's what it looks like to follow him. Let's pray together. Well, there are some folks here this morning, I know there are some folks here this morning who've never had the courage to step out in faith and to say, Jesus, I want your life. I want you to do this thing in me. I want you to forgive me and save me and change me and make me your follower, and I just wanna pray for you this morning, if that's you. Heavenly Father, would you move in people's hearts this morning who have never made a commitment to become followers of you? Would you build into their hearts and into their spirits, Father, this faith and this courage that allows them to step out and to cry out to you in faith and say, would you save me and forgive me and change me? And make me like you, Jesus. Would you please draw them into your family, draw them into our midst this morning. I know there are some here this morning that when I was talking about doing the new thing, you knew exactly what God is calling you to do. I just pray, Father, that over those who are longing to experience your power and authority to see healing and hope and restoration flow in their lives and through their lives, Father, I pray that you would make it clear to them the new thing that you are calling them to do so that they can experience something of your power and authority flowing in and through their lives. Father, move among us. Give us the courage that comes from faith that we would have stories to tell about the ways in which our church is beginning to look like the church that we read about in the pages of scripture because you are alive among us and in us and doing something amazing and wonderful and beautiful and miraculous in us and through us in the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.